I, I don't do as much fishing as I used to. Uh, obviously, I'm, you know, in my 70s, uh, uh, late, 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 late 70s. Uh, I've had a lot of health, a lot of health issues. Uh, I've been diabetic for probably close to 30 years, uh, a type 2 diabetic. Uh, I had a minor heart attack uh, and had a stent put in, had a stent put in, uh, and I went through, uh, went through prostate cancer with uh, having uh, radioactive seeds implanted. And now I'm, I'm in uh, some problems with uh, uh, very early, early stages of uh, of uh, Parkinson's. So, uh, but through it all, I think the, my love of fishing uh, has probably done more to see me through all this stuff. You know, I could have said, oh, heck with it, heck with it, and, and went and sat and stared at the wall. But I think fishing, fishing, my fly fishing is, and fly tying have, when, when everything looks the bleakest, I'll either go fishing or down and tie flies. Welcome to Real Pure Radio, an immersive podcast experience. You're home for engaging stories about fly fishing and other stuff too. Made possible by Costa Sunglasses, which are good if you like seeing fish. Moldy Chum, where smarter than average anglers start their day. And the Montana Fishing Film Festival, a place for everyone. Catch the vibe. You know that I need you. I met Denny when we were co-workers together at a little fly shop in Missoula, Montana. I remember being awed by the detail of the flies that he created. He was simply a master at his craft. Well, this is the first time this year for chest high waders for me. One of the, one of the people that I fish with a lot, or I used to, but uh, she ended up married and have a couple of kids and moved to Boise. Uh, Aaron, uh, we kind of got together when I worked at one fly shop. After I retired from what I did, I worked at a fly shop. And uh, my relationship with Aaron, uh, there again, is we just enjoy fishing uh, together. Uh, and, and a lot of it is not so much we got to catch a whole lot of fish or that, but just being together, uh, we enjoy the outdoors. And we would fish, uh, actually, all we could every Monday. Uh, a number of years younger than I am, obviously. Uh, and uh, she enjoyed, you know, we enjoyed just each other's company. We'd fish all over, heck, we'd take off for a week sometimes in the summer and and, uh, and we're wade fishermen. All we do is wade fish. And I always had a handful of, of flies that uh, I tied that, you know, maybe were, sometimes they were great and sometimes they were okay and sometimes they stunk. But we'd always try out on Walk Creek and she'd always, I'd always give her a handful of, of flies and she'd always try, try them out. I went fishing with Denny and Aaron. Cool autumn day. 
Let's take yeah. it. Let's take five. And Denny okay. fell oh, pretty hard. Let's just take a minute. But in typical Denny oh, fashion, really he soldiered on. Um, Denny's head up. Sorry. Um, this is Aaron talking. Denny's had a lot, and he deals with a lot, and he's dealt with a lot. And he never makes it an issue. Um, if anything, he tries to, to hide it a little bit, maybe a little bit too much. Um, and he, he doesn't want to put anybody out or, you know, ruin anybody's day. But, um, so yeah, today was a reality check that it can go, um, you can be in a precarious situation with someone you care about and that, um, it doesn't take the reality of fishing away that you know, you're out there to fish, but you're also you're out there for some camaraderie. It's something that you should be aware of, but it's not a death sentence. And, 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 and go about your life as normal as you can. It will affect it, but don't don't let it stop you from doing the things you like to do. My goodness. When you start out fly fishing, you, you, you just want to catch a fish, you know, that's the main thing. And then you want to catch a fish on a fly. Yeah. Nice, Eddie. And then the next thing is you want to catch a whole bunch of fish on a fly. And then you decide, hey, I want to catch a bunch of fish on a fly I tied. And then you move beyond that and you decide, I want to catch a big fish on a fly I tied. And then you go from there to, I want to catch a bunch of big fish on a fly I tied. And then I think the final step that you take is, I want to catch a big selective fish on a fly I tied. Danny and Aaron cut quite the figure out on the river. They are not your typical fishing pair. A man and a woman, yeah, not buddy. blood relatives, with a massive yeah, age gap. Denny is 79, and Aaron is in her 40s. But you can tell, they are perfect for each other. Against all odds, Denny hooks a fish. That's a good one. A really big oh, fish. Man. Denny, that's a nice fish. It is a brown trout, a fish that is revered amongst fly fishermen. It has golden yellow sides, a deep brown mahogany hue to its back, and big red spots. It's a beauty. Any day on the water with Denny is a good day, but you know, catching fish like that always makes it. We'll have another memory for when we're walking the river again. So I'll take that one and we'll have a lot more. It's clear that Erin is becoming aware of her longtime fishing buddy's mortality, and perhaps of her own, and the unforgiving, cyclical way of this planet. But it's also clear that she appreciates every moment they have left, and so does Denny. What does it mean to you to, to you know, be able to tie a, still tie a fly that a fish might actually eat? Feels pretty good. <laughs> 
don't know how much longer I'll be able to do it, but it feels pretty good. Oh, no, I don't. But I Denny has been fly fishing longer than almost anyone you will find on a local Missoula River has been alive. He is a wealth of knowledge. He has so many stories. When I was 11, uh, my dad and I went steelheading on the old Tahuya River there in Washington. And uh, I hooked into a, a huge steelhead. Uh, probably, we didn't weigh it, but it probably weighed 19 pounds. And I was a little scrawny thing. And that fish started pulling on me. And my dad looked over, you know, I'm being drug off this sandbar down into the down into the river and he ran over and grabbed me by the belt loop to, to slow me down and hold me up so we could land that fish. It was a big old, big old hook-jawed buck. Uh, real dark fish. And I remember him trying to keep me from going underwater there. My dad was an early steelheader. He, he had moved from uh, a Wyoming uh, out to Washington there to work in the shipyard in about 33, 34 and discovered steelhead. And that, that was his passion was steelhead. And uh, in those days, of course, there was very, very little that you had as far as gear. You either made it or did with what you had. And he, he made all of his own lines. He made all of his own uh, a lot of his own rods. I've got a, one of his old rods that he had. Uh, uh, he bought a few rods, but in those days, uh, you know, you paid maybe $5 for a rod. That was a lot of money. You didn't pay what you would, you know, $50, $100. Heck, I would buy groceries for two months. My mother would have never have stood for that. Uh, I remember the garage he would take and he dyed his own gut leaders. He had about five or six jars, mason jars, with different colored dyes in there so he could dye his leaders different colors. Different colors. Uh, a lot of the lines he bought, uh, he made himself. They were silk lines. He spliced them together. Uh, you didn't have uh, a fly shops to go to, so he'd go down and buy uh, hooks that were on lures and cut them. He liked certain ones and would cut them off. Uh, he didn't hunt, but he had friends that did and would give him uh, feathers and give him uh, fur and stuff like that that he'd dye and uh, didn't tie anything very fancy like you see today for, um, for steelhead flies but they sure caught fish. Yeah he'd, he'd make his fly lines and he'd have uh, like pegs in the in the wall there and he'd stretch his lines out and in, the, in those days uh, a lot of your lines you'd taken uh, they were silk and so he had to dress them with uh, uh, at that time, uh, kind of a, it was like a, a, a lead uh, type of a varnish that, uh, it was a red lead varnish, I remember. And he would, he'd dress them with that and then he would use uh, uh, the red muslin, red muslin on them so that they would, you know, float a little bit. And uh, they always had lines out there. Uh, he loved to fish uh, uh, bombers and uh, he'd have about four or five jars full of uh, white gas and ampho white gas and paraffin wax that he'd soak his bombers in. And he, he smoked about two packs of cigarettes a day. 
And my mother was always scared to death he was going to blow the garage up because he'd have a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, dipping his bombers and then different s solutions of that uh, floating there. That's awesome. Oh, my mother would have a coronary. She'd just come out there and, you got to quit smoking. She always had a cigarette and I'd have an ash. And i got another funny story. One of the nicer steelheads he caught one time. One of the nicer steelheads he caught one time, he was... Uh, he was great at tailing fish. I can never did learn how to do it, but he could tail a steelhead like nobody ever seen. And he had, of course, the usual cigarette hanging out of his mouth, and he reached down to tail the steelhead, and, of course, the cigarette hit the line there with the steelhead. Hit the leader, and burnt right through the leader, and off went the leader, and you probably heard him cussing three miles away. It was a nice bright fish, you know. Or do they just forget? Or do the silk sheets make it worth the sweat? I went over to Denny's house on a sunny afternoon to see his fly tying room, to see where the magic happens, so to speak. They're looking for a high tech. Super organized, like you see in the magazines. This is how normal people do this. If they're lucky. And I decided a long time ago, when I started tying flies, that I better have a dedicated, you better have a dedicated spot to tie flies. Because if you don't have a dedicated spot, just packing the stuff up, putting it out, setting everything up on the kitchen table, tying flies, taking it down, you won't tie very long. You'll say the hell with it. I'm not going to... You know, it's too much work, I'm not going to tie flies. I've learned over the years to actually listen when Denny tells you something about fly tying. This is where, this is where all my creations, this is where all my creations are, are done. And, and there's nothing, there's nothing fancy, there's nothing fancy about it. You know, and you, I can say I give a lot of stuff, there's a lot of stuff that I do that maybe I don't like or then don't know if it's going to work or not that might, that might, that might not, uh, I'll put these over there if you, yeah, that's, I should give you one of those alley shrimp too, but, mm -hmm. and this is, you haven't seen any of this, yet. This is flies that have died. And there's boxes upon boxes of flies in here. I think these are the my spruce moths, oh yeah. Denny's spruce moth fly, which is a bit of a niche hatch, is somewhat of a guide favorite. Steelhead, I got a bunch of those, you took those. I got into saltwater fishing, so of course I, I ended up with tons of crab flies that I tied. Bonefish flies. These are all bonefish flies that I tied. I don't know if I'll ever use these. Tarpon. 
I feel like I'm in a museum that isn't open to the public. And that's just one box of them. That's all flies in there. That's all those years of flies. This is tarpon. Hooks. Thread. This is all, all fur, feathers, dubbing. Oh, somebody asked me one time if I could tie bass flies. Hold on. Oh, yeah. Here, hold on. Let, let me switch sides. Let me go around. We talked about when I started out, you know, books. I have... That's wind shooter, but I've got a book. We will get back to the fly tying in a minute. But I want to share something that Denny shared about his father. This is one of the only times I've seen him get emotional. But he told me one time he thinks his dad lost the will to live after giving up fishing for steelhead. Our conversation also made me wonder how much better the world might be if people like Denny were senators, governors, presidents, etc. He quit steelheading the day they put started putting hatchery fish in. He just, for some reason, that was it for him. He walked, got, brought his stuff home, hung it up on the wall, and it was still hanging there when he passed away and I was packing up all his gear just like the day that he quit. What do you think that was about? Just the connection with the wild fish? And he just loved the wild fish. To him, that a wild steelhead was the most magnificent thing, thing in the world. He just couldn't, you know, imagine them taking that fish and, you know, making it a tame fish that he called it. It just wasn't, just wasn't the same. wasn't the same challenge. wasn't going to be the same. He he caught all of them that he'd wanted to. He just decided that that was it. And do you think that that ethos transferred to you? Well, you know, a lot of things. Of course, I moved back. He had been out of it since about '68 when I and when I moved back to Montana. Like I said, it was I think '73, and he had, he had he'd still do a little bit of trout fishing, lake fishing. But he wasn't able to get around like he used to, and uh, it just wasn't the same. He couldn't do the same things that he'd done. He was an avid winter steelhead fisherman, and that was a builder of men. I mean, you, you winter steelhead fish, you had to be able to be a pretty rugged individual to do that because the weather was crummy. Uh, we didn't have the high-tech gear back then. And it, 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 it was a challenge. I mean, if you, you were out there in the winter, you, you, you know, every fish you caught, you earned. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Denny, I'm going to talk about you to talk about just sort of your entree, uh, you know, into fly fishing and coming to Montana and then. I had fly fished some, somewhat when I lived back. In, in Washington, but nothing like here. I mean, I got old hand-me-down telescoping 
metal rod, level fly lines, a fluger reel that laid, weighed half as much as I did. You know, and I had thought at that time, I thought, boy, no wonder all these little guys do that. It takes them that many years to learn how to handle the gear. So when I moved back to, to Bozeman, one of the first things I did was I bought a, uh, at that time, it was a fairly nice fiberglass, it was a Cortland crown, nice fiberglass uh, fly rod and the uh, same Cortland, a Cortland fly reel and a double tapered line and, and off I went, you know. And, and yeah, I thought this was pretty neat. I'd fish the, the Gallatin, I fished the Madison and, 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 and those rivers over there. I did fish a little bit on the Yellowstone, but mostly I stayed around Bozeman. Uh, and I would like everybody else starting out, I'd buy my own flies, uh, but you know, the discount stores and that. And, you know, I got tired after a while, about every third or fourth cast, I'd come back and all of the feathers had fallen off of them. And I thought, I got to learn how to do this. So uh, there was a, one of the fly shops there, I forget which one it was, uh, in Bozeman, was giving fly tying, basic fly tying lessons. So I took it, I took it on and, and, and started tying my own flies, mostly wooly buggers and stuff like that. And then gradually, you know, started tying more dry flies and a few streamers and, and started out with basically an old uh, shoe box had everything that I needed in it. My vise, my feathers, my hooks, all the tools I need. Uh, I've come a long way since then. I know I need, and now I need about a 40 foot semi to put all this stuff in. So, you got into uh, fly tying out of necessity, and then, you know, how, how would you say that that's progressed or kind of took off? Well, I started fly tying, you know, I got tired, like I said, going down and spending, at that time, you know, flies were like a buck for good, decent ones more, which weren't that decent and that. And I thought, you know what? I can tie a whole bunch of these for, for that, and they're probably gonna hold together a lot better. So it was just a, a thing. And then I've never been into winter sports any at all, uh, snowmobiling or skiing or any of that. So it gave me something to do in the winter, you know, otherwise I discovered living in Montana, you gotta do something because in the, the, the winters are long and if you don't have some kind of hobby, they get real long real fast. Um, I just want you to talk maybe a little bit more about some of your kind of innovative patterns and, and if you've ever thought of some of your patterns as, as a body of work or, or not. And then I also kind of, I, I remember a crane fly. Oh, that was I'll, pretty I'll awesome. give you one of those. He did give me one. In fact, he's given me many flies over the years. Flies that I cherish and hide away in certain places and rarely, rarely fish. In fact, it seems like one of the main reasons he ties flies is to give them to people. And may, maybe I, talk about that pattern a little bit. I uh, would go down and fish at the uh, uh, big hole a lot. And of course, in the September, as you get down there, there's a good good crane fly hatch. And of course, I didn't have a pattern that I tied, so I'd go I'd go down there and I'd buy the, the out of the fly shop, buy their crane fly patterns. And, and my goodness, some of them were, you know, 
they weren't much fun to cast. So I, I came back home and, and I got to looking around at stuff and, and what I had and looking at their pattern. And I come up with a, a crane fly pattern that I used uh, a vermeil with and I used uh, rubber legs on that was a lot easier to cast and I thought it was a heck of a lot more of the crane flies that I had seen and a lot more you know match the hatch a lot better but I wasn't sure so I next time I went down there I took a handful of them with me with me and about the first cast I made before the thing even hit the water a fish come about six feet out of the water and took it out of the air so I, I figured you know I might be on to something here uh, when they first started fishing spruce moths uh, everybody you know you'd tie big caddis a size eight or so caddis and uh, which worked but but the more I seen a lot of times it looked like fish taking them they were taking a spent one, a spent moth. So I picked a couple of them up that were spent and, and brought them home and fiddled around with different materials, started with uh, um, different stuff for the, the, the wings. I think I, I started with uh, kind of a paper mache and stuff like that and, and, uh, and that and, and eventually figured, well, so I went with deer, deer hair, hmm, that worked. And then like of the body, I dubbed my own dubbing for the body, and then I'd spin a big deer hair head on them, and they just it just evolved into uh, uh, spent spruce moths. And uh, I started taking it when I was working at the fly shops. One of them, I'd take a handful to work, work, you know, and, and put them out there. And if people wanted to buy them, I'd either give them away or sometimes I'd. I'd sell them, but most of the time I gave them away, and pretty soon I had guys coming back, you got any more of those moths? Get any more of those moths? No. And then, so then I'd take maybe a dozen to work, and then two dozen, and it got up to four dozen. I said, that's enough of this stuff, you know. I'm spending all evening time free moths. So I eventually turned them over to a fellow, gave him the pattern, and said, here, take these and sell them. And the last time I I had checked and talked to him, he sold I don't know how he sold like 600 of them or something something like that. So that's just you know one of the many you know. It occurred to me that the whole reason I tackled this project was an interest in Denny's legacy. I felt like it needed to be preserved like people needed to know how extraordinary he is and how extraordinary his flies are. But it occurred to me that his legacy already exists. The flies tell their own story. I asked him about the continued practice of the art of fly tying, and he said, At least I still got some, you know, some ability. So you're probably wondering what the hell his flies look like, and I get that, but I can't show you, so I'll do my best to describe it. Now I am a fly tire myself, and I've been around fly fishing for a long time, but I'll try to see these with fresh eyes. 
None of his flies have names. That would be too self-aggrandizing. So I've come up with names for some of them. There's a bass popper. It looks like... Fuck, what does it look like? It's green and red and brown. And he's painted a mottled brown back on it. The front edge of the popper is inverted. And it looks like it would move a lot of water. There's the bitterroot hopper. It's tied on kind of a funny hook that hangs down and fish have a hard time spitting it out. It's got yellow barred legs, purple foam, gray foam, and a razor thin brown foam wing. There's something about it that just looks poised and ready. There's his steelhead squid. It's got a skirt of rubber legs, perfectly brushed out dubbing. It's blue, black, and purple with red eyes. But it doesn't look like anything I've ever seen. Something about it convinces me that it'll work. It looks a bit like an insect, but not in the way that flies do. It looks like a overgrown housefly. Okay, this is really hard, but I'm going to keep doing it. There's his gray drake, which is distinctively buggy compared to some of his other flies. There's an extended body that goes way past the hook, and he's crisscross deer hair back and forth, and there's a perfect little moose mane tail sticking out of the end. This is honestly one of my favorite flies. It's just, it's just kind of perfect. There's a little, there's like a little backpack of foam under the elk wing, and I just love that detail. Okay. Okay, here's a, here's a shrimp that he tied. It's so lifelike. It's got epoxy. There's a little glass rattle that you can hear when you put it up to your ear. It's super, super sparse. And then there's his fluttering spruce moth. It's got his own dubbing blend, which is what the body is wrapped with. And splayed out wings. When you look at it, it honestly looks like a bug. And I know that that sounds stupid, but not all flies do. This looks real. Special thanks to Denny Walm, who is still spending every day he can out on the water or tying flies in his basement. Special thanks to Aaron Nordemir. This podcast was produced in Missoula, Montana by PMD Productions. Please like and subscribe. Just a quick update on Denny. He's not doing great right now. He's up against a lot of stuff, mostly health concerns, but of course he doesn't want any help from anyone. 
and he's always pushing forward. But if you were touched by this story, please reach out and drop a line to Denny at pmdcreate at gmail.com. That's pmdcreate at gmail.com. This has been an episode of Real Pure Radio, an immersive podcast experience. Your home for engaging stories about fly fishing and other stuff too. Made possible by Costa Sunglasses, which are good if you like seeing fish. Moldy Chum, where smarter than average anglers start their day. And the Montana Fishing Film Festival, a place for everyone. Catch the vibe. You know that I need you night and day. Hey, hey, hey.